This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. Former Vice President Mike Pence was the primary subject of the January 6th hearings this last Thursday. He didn't go along with Donald Trump's plot to overthrow the government and steal the 2020 election. In other words, Pence resisted a coup. A coup that even its moronic architect, John Eastman, knew going in was illegal. Mike had wanted to comply. He and his staff had asked around. They sought advice from some of the greatest legal minds in the country. Hell, he even went to Dan Quayle for advice. And everyone told him, don't do it. Don't do that. I'm sure that the plot to subvert the election results had obsessed Trump even before the election was called for Biden on November 9th of 2020. And by the time January 6th, 2021 rolled around, Two whole months later, Pence definitely knew who Trump was and what he was capable of doing. Votes are still being counted. This is disinformation and misinformation on a level that has not been seen from the presidential podium in the East Room of the White House in my lifetime. This is why people are boarding up the, the, the stores. What President Trump just said was undemocratic and false and premature. Uh, this is a, an extremely flammable situation and the president just threw a match into it. Or we would have gotten in the car that showed up to whisk him away from the Capitol on the 6th and away from certifying the election. But until that day, Pence had stayed quiet. I mean, call it loyalty, call it fear. I know from experience that no one likes to deal with the wrath of Donald J. Trump. And during the days leading up to the insurrection, Trump had surrounded himself with sycophants willing to do and say anything to avoid that wrath. I'm the president of the United States. I'm not the president of other countries. Every one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? Maybe I have a natural ability. Maybe I should have done that instead of running for president. What do you have to lose? I'll say it again. What do you have to lose? Take it. Hydroxychloroquine. Try it, if you'd like. Trump called Mike a wimp and then a pussy, if you believe eyewitness accounts. But Mike didn't give in. And good for him. So why did it take so long for this story to even come out? Why didn't Mike and Ivanka, Jared, or any of the other White House staff come forward the very next day and say, this is bullshit? Trump lost and he knows it. We plotted a coup and it failed. Now everybody go home and let Biden get on with the business of running the country. I'll tell you why no one stood up until they were dragged in front of the commission. There was still good money to be made. And Trump wasn't the only one cashing in. Stop the Steal became a brand, a cash cow that nobody wanted to quit. The $250 million that disappeared into Trump's pockets is only the tip of the iceberg. As one senior advisor to the committee put it, this is perhaps the largest conspiratorial grift in the history of the United States. Well, he conned his voters. Um, I think there are two issues here. One, he ripped people off. 
And two, he used the fundraising emails as another mode to disseminate the big lie. And I don't know if you noticed at the end of our hearing today, some of the rioters on January 6th uh, reciting elements of the so-called fraud. Uh, so it was twofold. It was to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, but also to help disseminate uh, the fraud lie. Plus, the plot to overthrow the government had only just begun. Trump didn't just subvert the 2020 election with the big lie. He fucked elections in this country indefinitely. It's still going on this moment as I speak. So cool, Mike stepped up on the 6th, but a real hero would have stopped the slow rolling steel and not just covered his own ass. A real hero would have been testifying in front of the committee and not let his toadies do it for him. But Mike Pence isn't a real hero. Would you like to hear Mike Pence uh, push back on Donald Trump about his, uh, his false claims that Pence had the right to overturn the election results? Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, the former vice president speak about what real American leadership looks like. But does the former vice president have a duty to push back against these false claims by the former president? No, he's not. He's, he's a private citizen. Uh, I don't think he has a duty to do that, no. There are apparently some Republicans still willing to stick their necks out for democracy. And one such man, retired federal judge J. Michael Luddig, Luddig said at the hearings what I've been saying for months. Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. And in my opinion, if he isn't jailed and if the people responsible for plotting the coup don't go down with him, the Republic will be lost. I mean, it's just plain and simple. That declaration of Donald Trump as the next president would have plunged America into what I believe would have been tantamount to a revolution within a constitutional crisis. Luddig outlined, and it'll be very, very slowly in the statement before the committee, just how close he believed democracy came to the brink. And I quote, it's a breathtaking that these arguments even were conceived, let alone entertained by the President of the United States at that perilous moment in history. Had the Vice President obeyed the President, America would be immediately have been plunged into what would have been tantamount to a revolution within a paralyzing constitutional crisis. Couple of other quick takeaways from the hearings. Eastman asked for a pardon. He knew the plot was cooking up was illegal. When interviewed by the committee in a closed-door session, he took the fifth over a hundred times. Pardons are for criminals, and Eastman is clearly a criminal. So if John Eastman is taking the fifth, is asking for a pardon, because he clearly at that point recognized that he was in criminal hot water, uh, the only other people who were really integrally involved in pushing Eastman's theory were Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and Donald Trump. It does seem at this point like what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is most of the rest of White House officials were behind the scenes pushing against this whole scheme.
but that Eastman kept pushing forward. I mean, even to the point where he fully acknowledged that what he was doing was illegal, but he just wanted Vice President Pence to do it anyway. Now we have Rudy Colludi Giuliani, Peter Navarro, and the rest of Trump's MAGA circus freaks all want to scream executive privilege as their excuse for not talking to the committee. But executive privilege only applies to those conducting legitimate government business, not crimes, and certainly not an insurrection. <laughs> and then there's Jeannie Thomas, I mean Jeannie fucking Thomas, the creepy QAnon consort of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. I mean, still pushing false claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election. That alone should disqualify her husband from sitting on the bench, period. End of story. Well, the Ginny Thomas story is interesting, but it's really a sideshow. It's an important sideshow in the sense that if her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas, um, had his way, we wouldn't really know about all of the conversations between Ginny Thomas and this weirdo, John Eastland. Uh, John Eastman would have not come to the surface in connection with her and therefore we wouldn't have known the full extent of a conspiracy the reason that's true is that the court voted eight to one with the one being uh, justice thomas dissenting that the national archives had to release all sorts of information that included information about the justice's wife so among other things he was violating the federal statute that requires all judges and justices to not take part in proceedings in which their spouse is involved. After the committee asked Ms. Thomas to come in and explain her role in the coup, she got on the horn with her pals at the conservative crazy news outlet, The Daily Caller, and said that she can't wait to clear up misconceptions. I look forward to talking to them. I bet she can't. It's already been established that she was in communication with Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on the 6th. Text messages that senior tech advisor to the committee, Denver Riggleman, says, One of the first to see the text with the link to the name. It was up to us to validate those text messages. So when I saw them, I think of the five words that chilled me the most was, I hope this is true, which is at the bottom of one of the first texts when she talks about Democrats going to Gitmo, she talks about watermarked ballots. She actually sort of sprinkles in a lot of the QAnon conspiracy theories. And that's, you know, and reading all those 29 text messages, there seemed to be a break from reality. And also her access is what bothered me the most. And it does some of the things you're like, well, that's pretty funny. You laugh at some of these things, but it looked like the QAnon conspiracy theories had infiltrated, you know, every part of the Republican Party. And looking at the wife of Supreme Court justice sending this type of almost um, deranged type of text messages. It really struck me when I went through all the text messages how that thread was sort of interwoven between all of them. And wow, it doesn't look good for old Jeannie Thomas. Also now looking back on Trump's second impeachment trial, which would have been an excellent opportunity for Republicans to throw Donald under the bus, prosecutors didn't have access to records or witnesses that could show Trump was aiming to incite violence on purpose. But that's exactly what the January 6th committee has on him now. Proof, and what I believe the committee is laying out for the whole world to see. But primarily for the DOJ. It's a criminal case proving that Donald Trump obstructed Congress, which is an extremely serious federal felony carrying imprisonment of 20 years. Our entire investigation is a referral of 
crimes both to the Department of Justice and to the American people. I'm going to try to observe that. Uh, Attorney General Garland is my constituent, and I don't browbeat my constituents. I think that he knows, his staff knows, the U.S. attorneys know uh, what's at stake here. Merrick Garland and the DOJ are apparently now pressing the committee to stop what they're doing and turn over their transcripts to them. We can assume that evidence will be used for prosecution, but whether or not Garland and his people have the stomach to bring charges against Trump is yet to be determined. But the committee's case stating that Trump and company undertook a seven-pronged approach when plotting their failed coup is a gift to the Justice Department should they choose to proceed. And it ain't over yet. We're not even at the halftime. And somewhere in the more to come, I think that they'll finally connect the dots between the Proud Boys and Trump. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups yeah. and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing. Not from the right so wing. So what are you? What are you? you what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists and white supremacists. Stand back and stand by. I have other questions too. Chuck Grassley, what the hell did you do? Jared Kushner, why were you in charge of pardons? And Kevin McCarthy and you other four subpoena deniers in Congress. Don't you think that now would be a good time to tell the committee what you know? If not now, then when? Because it isn't going to stop with the coup plotters. They're coming for you next. And Trump's troubles don't end with the committee either. <laughs> no, New York's highest court has now rejected Trump's last-ditch effort to avoid testifying in the state attorney general's civil investigation into his business practices, clearing the way for his deposition next month. You got Trump, Ivanka, and Don Jr. will all have to answer questions under oath starting July 15th unless the Court of Appeals decides to step in, which they won't. And whether or not the Department of Justice files criminal charges against Trump after the Congressional Committee finishes their hearings or not, he'll likely be going to court in Georgia after a special grand jury hands down its decision on Trump's election tampering in that state. So, it appears that the Teflon Don has got a whole lot of explaining to do, and perhaps the wheels of justice will finally run him over. How goes the trail? Very warm, sir. You might even say hot. Then, you found your murderer. In a matter of speaking, yes, sir, I have. And I certainly have you to thank. A few updates on stories I reported on earlier this week. New Mexico State Supreme Court has ordered a Republican-led county commission of Otero to finally certify the results of their June 7th primary. The commission had refused to do so, citing stupid conspiracy theories about Dominion voting machines. Conspiracy theories that, thanks to the My Pillow guy, are at the heart of Trump's absurd election fraud claims. Sidebar. 
One member of the Otero County Commission who refused to certify the primary is Coy Griffin, co-founder of Cowboys for Trump, who famously said, the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. Anyway, he's about to be sentenced for his role in the January 6th insurrection. Otero County Commissioner and Cowboys for Trump founder Coy Griffin has been sentenced for his role during the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. A federal judge sentenced Griffin to 14 days in jail after being convicted on a misdemeanor charge of trespassing. However, Griffin is being credited with time already served because he was in jail for his pretrial detention. That means he won't be in jail those 14 days. The federal judge also sentenced him to a $3,000 fine, $500 restitution, and one year of supervised release. Griffin was facing up to a year in prison, but he is now free to go back home in Otero County. So good fucking riddance, but this standoff in New Mexico has voting right activists everywhere ringing alarm bells as we head into November. Because election deniers are actively trying to take control of local election bodies all over the country. So don't try to tell me the coup is over. It ain't over, far from it. And lastly, I spoke too soon and said that a safe gun bill was all but a done deal. Sorry, John Cornyn, the reasonable Republican that was tasked with getting this job done pulled the classic piece out and left a closed door bipartisan meeting Thursday, saying he was flying home. Cornyn's hissy fit came as both sides were struggling to finalize details in time to hold the vote in Congress next week. But behind the scenes, according to Axios, GOP senators are pissed because they think that any gun violence bill will unite the Democrats and divide the Republicans. Indoors out of the summer Houston heat. Howdy, everybody. U.S. Senator John Cornyn of Texas got a chilly reception at the Texas Republican Party statewide convention, especially when he talked about guns. Here's my guiding principle. Make sure good people have guns and that bad people don't. Senator Cornyn said he is passionate about the Second Amendment and told his fellow senators he will not support new restrictions on law-abiding gun owners. That will always be my red line. And despite what some of you may have heard, the framework that we are working on is consistent with that red line. Cornyn better get back to the negotiating table and work with Democrats to pass some safe gun laws now or he'll have the American people to answer to. And now for the main event. Our guest today on Maya Culpa is the groundbreaking congressional reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell. Lowell has broken a number of high-profile stories about the January 6th committee's investigation, including several scoops pertaining to Mark Meadows, the war room at the Willard Hotel, and insider facts such as Trump ordering his advisors not to comply with January 6th committee subpoenas. Lowell regularly appears as a political analyst on MSNBC and is often a guest on Morning Joe. The beat with Ari Melber, Ari Velshi, and All In with Chris Hayes. His reporting has been cited in the Washington Post, Bloomberg, and the New York Times. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Hugo, 
You watch the Congress for a living. I mean, you're dialed into Washington in general. So you must be focused, obviously, right now on the January 6th hearings. What, in your opinion, are the most shocking or damning details to come out of the hearings so far? And how do you think that the committee is doing overall? Do you think that they're laying their case out successfully? Yeah, I think they are laying out a, a case successfully. I mean, the biggest thing for me is, is there evidence of a crime here that Trump was involved in some sort of uh, criminal uh, act. And it certainly seems that way when um, you have White House counsels, uh, the, the, the campaign lawyers all tell you that the election fraud claims are nonsense. And then when you move ahead with a plan to pressure Pence to obstruct the congressional certification, um, all your lawyers also know that that is completely unlawful and unconstitutional. And Trump was told all of this. And yet they all persisted with this plan to try and throw out the election um, at the joint session of Congress on January 6th. And so having established or have, with the select committee having established his real corrupt intent, I think the committee can now move forward in establishing how Trump uh, committed crimes in trying to return himself to the Oval Office. Okay, so you're really referring now to, of course, day three of the January 6th hearings. However, let's not forget the other people who had previously made statements about criminal acts that, or we'll call them unconstitutional acts, by Trump and or his acolytes, including, for example, Ivanka and Jared or Don Jr. and a half a dozen, Rudy Giuliani, right? Or as like we like to call him here, a mea culpa, Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani. I mean, there's a whole slew, Mark Meadows. Um, I mean, even with the conversations that took place that we've now learned between Sean Hannity and Kaylee McEnany, I mean, these all really do set up some sort of an issue for Merrick Garland to consider in terms of bringing indictments. That's really what I'm looking to find out. I mean, you are there in D.C. You are wired into D.C. You think Merrick Garland's going to finally pick up the mantle and do something with it? Look, Michael, you know as well as I do, we can only pass what the Justice Department has shown us in public. And you know, that's as, as, as good as we're going to get. I think the signs are encouraging, though. And, and see if you disagree with me. We have at least two grand juries that have been impaneled in D.C. that are looking intently at Trump's political operatives and his lawyers, right? One grand jury is looking at the rally organizers, people connected to Stop the Steal, uh, and, you know, through Roger Stone and, and Ali Alexander and those people. And then you have another grand jury that is looking at the Trump lawyers. So people like Rudy Giuliani, people like Boris Epstein, who, you know, people forget was really deeply involved in a lot of this stuff on January 6th. He played a real outsized role. So you have two grand juries looking at this. And then Merrick Garland comes out this week and says, look, my prosecutors and I, we're watching these hearings very, very closely. And then he got asked this thing about, does the DOJ, Office of Legal Counsel, uh, prohibit you from opening an investigation to Trump? And he pointedly said, no, it does not. I've been informed that I can open an investigation into Trump. And I think if you look at all of these things together, it suggests that DOJ has a larger appetite or a more more aggressive appetite to go after Trump than we have seen to date. And I think that is encouraging. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Though then again, how many things have we seen over the course of, since Biden took office that we have documentary evidence? You can't argue with that. You have the sworn testimony of people with firsthand knowledge. And yet, so far, nobody has done 
anything. They are so reticent to step up and to file an indictment. And I don't understand why, especially after seeing what happened on the third day when Eastman, right, when Trump was told Eastman's plan was illegal. But you know what? Donald's position is, fuck it. Let's just do it anyway. Who's going to stop us? That's the problem here. Who's going to stop them? And we're all relying on somebody who has, again, been so reticent to turn around and to bring an indictment or a special investigation, right, um, by the DOJ into these alleged improper illegal acts. What do you think it's going to take? What more do you think it's going to take? I don't care if they have 30 hearings onto it. There's already enough. That's there. So why do we have to drag it out and drag it out? Why not just file? I think there is an element that DOJ doesn't want to shit all over the select committee's, you know, hearings for now. I mean, they are asking, right, for witness transcripts. I mean, there was that letter yesterday. It was real public repudiation uh, for them to send that letter in the Proud Boys case saying, you know, our criminal investigations are being hampered by the select committee's refusal to turn over the witness transcripts. And kind of in response to that, Benny Thompson, the chairman, said, you know, we will give them to you at the end of, you know, at least uh, these hearings, potentially at the end of our investigation. So I do feel like the, the DOJ is waiting on that a little bit. And it is true that DOJ has focused a lot on the people that broke into the Capitol and less so up until now on the political players, which has really been the realm of the select committee. So I think Actually, in many respects, even though it's taken a long time to get here, we are now seeing these two paths cross. And the moment that the select committee turns over the bulk of its evidence, you know, people like the Eastman emails, like, you know, and the select committee's only just been getting the, this evidence. And it's been a real protracted corporate process, as you know, um, to get Eastman's emails. Like he only just turned over the final transfer of communications as text messages with people like Ginny Thomas and um, rest of the people in the Trump administration on Monday. So they've only just got it. But I feel like once this all gets packaged and sent to the DOJ, the evidence so far in, is, 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 is clear as day. I mean, these lawyers were admitting in emails and conceding that what they were trying to do was illegal and unlawful and unconstitutional. You know, Trump was being told this in the Oval by Eastman that it was a violation of the Electoral Count Act. Rudy Giuliani was saying um, to, to Eric Hirschman, the White House lawyer, that he, he thought Eastman was wrong. So... Once you have all the evidence packaged and sent to DOJ, I do feel like there is a point when they have to, you know, consider how can we not move to prosecute Trump when the evidence is so abundantly clear. Yeah. You know, the part that I actually enjoyed, um, and it's, you know, you're not supposed to uh, bask in somebody else's, you know, misery, but when Eastman emailed Giuliani about receiving a presidential pardon after January 6th, I mean, clearly the guy's not asking for a presidential pardon because um, he knew he didn't do something wrong. But what I thought was very interesting was the fact that they were emailing that Eastman knew to email Giuliani, right? Which is very. Um, it's very reminiscent of what had happened to me when Giuliani and through his, you know, now attorney, this guy Costello, you know, was saying to me, well, you know, maybe we can get you a pre-pardon. Let's talk about pre-pardons. Let's talk about pre-pardons right at the time, um, you know, that I was testifying the very first time uh, to Congress to the time that they raided my home, my hotel and so on, Uh, you know, That, to me, I thought was very interesting, simply because everybody knew that 
Giuliani was sort of the corrupt, you know, guy who you can go to to try to um, put your name onto the list of the potential recipients for these presidential pardons or these pre-pardons, as they would like to call them, these pocket pardons. Uh, So I thought that was actually very interesting and telling all at the same time. Yeah, I think, look, and, and this is actually one of the things I was curious about your insight, Michael, because you're, you're obviously so close to Trump world and you know how, how Trump world operates. But I did think it was interesting how Eastman was emailing, you know, first of all, as you say, Rudy. Now, how did he know to email Rudy of all people? Like, you know, why wasn't he emailing um, Jared? Like, he was emailing Rudy. The second thing was, why did he put it in an email given all of these guys were still in the Willard in the days after January 6th? Like, Eastman was... Eastman was there a day or so later. You know, um, Rudy was still at the Willard for a few days later. So why do they put this in an email? Like that just, that I can't comprehend. There's this lawyer basically showing a consciousness of guilt and creating a paper trail. So that was really fascinating. And I also want to know kind of what was Rudy's response to all this? You know, how would, you know, what would Rudy say in response? Because Eastman, according to my reporting at least, Eastman wasn't the only one who asked for a pardon. Uh, in the days after January 6th. I, I know of at least one other person whose who's identity I can't review at the moment because it was off the record, but uh, there was another person who also asked Rudy for a pardon, and it was someone connected to Mike Flynn. And so it, it is striking that they all went to Rudy to try and get themselves out of it. Well, let me give you the answer as to why they put it into emails and text messages and why they were dealing directly with Giuliani, because they're fucking stupid. There's really just no other way to describe it. You know, here they are claiming that we've done nothing wrong, yet they're looking for these preemptive pardons, right? Because they knew what they were doing uh, was wrong. And interestingly enough, Donald, very much like what he did with me. There's no pardons. There was no pre-pardons. He wasn't giving it out. And the people that they were running to, right, are the same people that are whispering into Donald's ear, no, 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 you don't want to do that because it'll make you look bad, right? Yet, right. you know, the, the whole thing is just backwards. I mean, this is really a group of grifters that sat in the highest seats of power, you, you know, wielding that sword around like it didn't mean anything with, of course, Trump being at the helm. And then, of course, having somebody like Kushner and Don Jr. and Kimberly Gargoyle all sitting out there, Giuliani. And then you have the Josh Holies, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, the Josh Holies, you know, all sitting there and playing, you know, kingmaker. They're playing God trampling on all of our constitutional rights and really in hopes of changing the United States from a democracy into an autocracy for their own benefit. I mean, that's really what this whole thing was all about. But I wanted to ask you, Hugo, again, since you're so plugged in, who are the heroes that you see coming out of these hearings? I mean, the committee has been, to say, to say you can't say it any other way, incredibly impressive Right. But going in, Liz Cheney, for example, I mean, she tanked her own career with Republicans in Wyoming. So how do you think history will view the hearings and the people that are involved? Do you think it'll affect the American public's opinion about the Trump White House? And then, of course, going forward to these um, midterm elections and then the ultimate general in 2024? I feel like it won't have an effect in the short term. But in the long term, it will. And I, you know, as, as you said, Cheney put it the best when she said, you know, when the eyes of history look upon you, the shame 
the shame of these Republicans who, uh, who, who conspired with Trump to try and obstruct the certification to overturn the results, the shame will be on you forever. And I think that's kind of the telling point. I mean, we're the 50th anniversary of Watergate right now, and we're still looking back at Watergate and, and kind of grapple and comprehend with how Nixon and, and John Dean and, and that administration um, basically you know, corrupted uh, our democracy. Um, but then we look at Trump and then we see it taken to a whole new level. And I think it takes time for people to be able to digest this and to really comprehend the magnitude of what Trump and Giuliani and Eastman and all these guys were trying to do. I think Cheney is definitely uh, one of the big heroes that comes out of all this, as you say, you know, sacrificed her political career. I mean, she was mm-hmm. the number three in the House Republican Conference. She was she was top leadership um, and she sacrificed all of that for really the truth. I mean. It, it, is, it is unfathomable sometimes watching these Republicans turn around and, 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 and shit on a committee uh, that has been engaged in real, um, honest, independent inquiry. Um, and I think that's sad from a, from, a, from a perspective of democracy, but I think it's also good that the committee has been able to establish a narrative. And that narrative, I think, will live on. I think other people who are heroes on this committee, people like John Wood, um, you know, some of the investigative councils. I, I think someone like Marcus Childress, some of these investigative councils who work very, very hard and never have a kind of a public face, but uh, they have been working extremely hard morning till night, um, often to like, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, like any other lawyer. Um, and they have been the powerhouse behind this committee. They have been doing the heavy lifting and connecting the dots. You know, the people who aren't the heroes, though, people like Bill Barr, who are happy to talk to the committee once, you know, they get invited, to, when, once you get called to, mm-hmm. called to testify, whether it was because of a subpoena or not, uh, I, I can't remember. But regardless, he could have raised all of these things at the time and he didn't. When he resigned, his, his letter was all about how fantastic Trump was. There was none of this stuff about he was resigning because he thought Trump's election came from bullshit. It was, he was saying that Trump was a wonderful guy. And these guys lied to the American public and kept the pretense up. And only now they want to come out. And I think there's a lot of reputation laundering through this committee. And that that is not OK. And I think they are not the heroes um, as much as they like to position themselves to be. Yeah. And I've said this on, on a previous podcast. I've said on television, their goal is to try to be you know, reunited with polite society because Bill Barr is seen as exactly what he is, a fat fucking pig scumbag, right, who turned around. Look at what he did to the Mueller report by releasing that two, three page sort of, um, you know, bar bullet point. Summary. Of the, right. This right. summary that completely discredited the Mueller report for what? For the benefit of Donald Trump. And then I also see people, you know, saying that um, Mike Pence is one of the heroes of the January 6th. Why? Why? Because he turned around and no, he did. Greg his- Jacob, Greg Jacob was the hero of that story. Pence just just figured out what was going to be the best route for him once the Trump presidency was going to end because he knew it was going to end because he didn't buy into the election fraud crap. But then he listened to his lawyers and decided that was the most politically convenient exit for him. I totally agree. I mean, he was told by attorneys that you can't do this. Okay, you know, you can't also go shoot somebody in the street. So just because Trump tells you to do it, like he said, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. 
Pence decided that he wasn't going to take that route. But I don't give him any badges for bravery or honesty or so on. He was doing what he was supposed to do. I mean, now all of a sudden we are rewarding people for doing their job. I mean, this is like the, you know, this is like the Gaylord Fokker Participation Award. I mean, this is absolutely foolish. And, and it bothers me that you start to hear some of these pundits on television and they all regurgitate the same bullshit. Oh, Mike, Mike Pence is the unsung hero, you know, who wasn't, you know, who didn't testify and there is no video of him but others have because he did the right thing i mean did the right thing okay now you get a pat on the back maybe we should give him a bonus right or you know send him away for a couple of weeks with his wife because he didn't destroy our democracy i i i don't get it there's so well, many right. there's so and, many and people you mentioned a great point yeah you mentioned a great point and it's like pence didn't testify he was happy to send his aides to go testify and convey the message that he wanted to testify but it always struck me as as, there's no way around saying it. Like it, it's kind of cowardly, right? He didn't want to go testify to the committee, presumably because he thought it would hurt his presidential bid for 2024. But he didn't testify to the committee. If he was really a hero, he would have gone in and voluntarily and been like, "Look, this is what happened." And he didn't do that. You know, and I think that for me is telling a bubble. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, I have people on social media saying, "Oh, you know, Michael, you're a hero. You're here." I don't consider myself to be a hero. I just consider myself somebody who responded initially to a subpoena and then continued to cooperate. But I cooperated at the worst time in the world for me. Right? I I had just been raided. They took. 10 million documents from me. Trump was in power with a willing and complicit scumbag for an attorney general, right, that was willing to destroy me and my family simply to appease his master. And yet I still did it. My family, myself, we were all in fear for our, for our lives. I mean, you know, there are a lot of crazy people that are out there. And the fact that Pence sent other people to testify in his behalf after Trump is out of office and God willing, and it's my belief that he will not be running again, all right? That to me is not bravery. It's just really not. Bill Barr sitting there, you know, with his legs crossed, with that fat fucking belly hanging over the table, sitting there, I told him it was bullshit. I told him it was bullshit, right? No, no, Bill. Your bullshit. And that's why, you know, I'm suing them for the unconstitutional. I can't wait to get him across the table for a deposition so we can find out the truth. Why doesn't he tell everything? Well, I know that he wanted to do that in his book, but, you know, they had they cut out, obviously, a lot of stuff. And he wanted to make money off of his, you know, um, you know, his steward as attorney general. But. He couldn't come out and he couldn't tell what really was going on. The other things that Donald and Don Jr. and Jared and Ivanka and, you know, Laura Trump and Eric Trump and the whole clan, right? What Rudy was doing instead, he wants to make it into a joke, right? I told him it was bullshit. He didn't want to listen. And so I decided to resign. You resigned after the guy lost. I mean, that's not to me bravery. I, I don't get it. Right. And I, it, it bothers me how much airtime that the guy's actually getting. They should really drill down on everything that the guy knows. And let's put an end to wasting taxpayer dollars on these hearings. And let's let's just start the indictments. That's what I keep trying you know, to say. And it's what I'm certainly hoping for. Yeah, and I think that's right. And you know, the, the reputation, I mean, it's DC, the reputation laundering is always going to happen. I mean, same in New York, right? I mean, 
uh, as you know, you know, Jared and Ivanka wanted to come back into New York society. I think they went and bought a place up on, on Park and was it 78 or something? Nope, 59th. Uh, and then they just, oh, 50, okay. And then, but then, but then that didn't work out. So that they're, they're, they're back down in Florida. But this is always going to happen. I think your point is correct, though, that now that the evidence is out there, that DOJ needs to look at this and start making a decision quickly on whether they're going to pursue indictments, because that's the only language anyone understands. The moment the select committee is done with its work, Trump would presumably turn around and say, oh, the hearings were a sham. There's nothing there. Uh, None of it was new. In fact, Jim Jordan was on, I I think, OAN the other day saying none of this was new, which is nonsense. Like I've followed this investigation for 11 months, 12 months, and I can tell you that there were new things that came out of this. And I am you know, more deeply in the weeds than 99% of people. And I can tell you that there was new stuff coming out of these uh, hearings. And so, and, and, you know, and the point to remember is that the evidence that has come out in these hearings is just a sliver of what the select committee has. They have pulled out the, um, the elements that are easy for the public, for the layman to understand, because that's what the, the hearings are for, right? That to inform the American public exactly what they have uncovered. But if you go into the actual meat of Eastman's emails where he's admitting all sorts of stuff about how you know he knew that the the electors needed to be certified if, if his pence plan was going to work the fact that he knew his pence plan was was in itself unlawful and unconstitutional and then that goes to doj i don't see how the doj can just sit on that and do nothing well, I, from your mouth to god's ears but you know and, and not only did jim the jerk off jordan you know uh say that nothing new is here what Jim Jordan also turned around and said, which I thought was incredible messaging, once again, by the Republican Party, something that we as Democrats or myself as a Democrat, um, that w- w- the party just doesn't do. Jim Jordan's comment was, what's the point in watching or dealing with these January 6th hearings when you have $5 plus gasoline? I mean, you know, talk about distraction, talk about deflection. I mean, that's almost like a Chris Angel move, right? Look over here at this hand, and next thing you know, he's got an elephant in his left hand. I mean, it's truly an amazing trick that they're trying to pull off. And this is just the Trump playbook, something that I warned the world of back in 2019. First when I turned around as the first person to say it, knowing Donald Trump as I do, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. And I understand. You from, I, I sure did. Right. I also understand that uh, from a couple of my own inside sources that they were considering, meaning the January 6th committee, calling me uh, to testify. They wanted to know why I thought that and other things. And from what I heard, they may even be considering playing that clip. Um, you know, to talk about um, the accuracy of it. But one of the things that I also thought was uh, really telling about Jim Jordan here is that they are, meaning the Republicans, they are petrified of this January 6th hearing. And I don't mean simply for Donald. Rest assured, and I want to be clear to my listeners, to you, if you're writing anything, you know, in The Guardian, these people care as much about Donald Trump as Donald Trump cares about them. And the answer to that is he doesn't and they don't care about him. So what will ultimately occur? Now they realize that they're, each and every one of them, their asses are in trouble. 
And so, like a Bill Barr, you know, like half a dozen other of these folks that have, you know, testified, including Jared and Ivanka, right? They're placing the blame on somebody else. And a lot of this blame seems to be pointed and directed at Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani. And I said it to him. I said it on television. I said, I know what they're going to do to you. Welcome to the Under the Bus Club. They will throw him under, along with everybody else, in order to save themselves. So, you know, this is the time, and I agree with you, this is the time that the DOJ needs to do something. Because, look, at the end of the day, we've seen how many allegations of illegal acts going back, what, five years now, six years now, and yet DOJ has done nothing in the two years, you know, basically since now, or I should say year and a half since Biden has been president, the DOJ has done nothing with any of that information, not just the DOJ, but here Alvin Bragg with the New York, you know, district attorney's office, you know, against Donald Trump. I don't know where that Teflon is coming from, but I think this January 6th hearing is really pulling a lot of that Teflon off. I think that's right. I mean, I mean, like I said at the start, I think the fact that DOJ has been impounding these grand juries um, and that they are starting, you know, people in the leadership, people around um, Dag Monaco, the deputy attorney general and her uh, her top 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 officials have been asking around about the prospect and very quietly trying to figure out the contours of what uh, pursuing an indictment against uh, people around Trump and Trump would look like. Uh, that's according to my sourcing, at least. Um, but to your point about Republicans paying attention to these hearings very closely. I think that's exactly right. You know, Republicans like to attack this committee as kind of partisan and it's witch hunt, which, by the way, multiple federal courts, both at the district level and the appellate level, have said, you know, the Kazakh committee is totally legitimate and they have a legitimate legislative function. Um, but they are pr- closely paying attention because they never attack the facts that the committee uncovers. It's always an attack on the process. It's, oh, you don't have a proper minority. Uh, even though there are two Republicans and it is a bipartisan committee, is that you don't have minority counsel, even though um, Cheney has appointed John Wood um, uh, as, as senior ambassador counsel of her own accord. And it's never about the facts. They never dispute the fact that Eastman knew his plan was illegal. Giuliani knew the plan was illegal. All the president's men, to borrow a phrase, effectively knew that the claims about election fraud were nonsense. They always, they always want to talk about how the committee is not properly constituted. And they must be uh, very attuned to what the committee is saying because now their asses are on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, Liz Cheney came out in their first hearing and said, we have evidence that Scott Perry, the current chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, was asking for a pardon and that there were other Republican lawmakers also asking for pardons. And as you pointed out in uh, your MSNBC uh, uh, blog post, I think it was in the first hearing, you don't get a bigger consciousness of guilt than a presidential pardon. Yeah, totally agree with that one. So since we're talking about that, let me ask you this question, Hugo. The rule of law has been at the heart of the January 6th hearings. Do Republicans other than, say, Judge Ludig and Mike Pence still believe in the rule of law? Hmm. I think they believe in the rule of law as far as uh, when it's them on the receiving end uh, of the rule of law. I mean, uh, case in point, Peter Navarro, when uh, <laughs> when he got arrested by the FBI in his <laughs> attempt of Congress case, and he got pulled off a plane, and you know he found out for the first time what happens when you kind of thumb your nose at the Justice Department. I mean, you know, federal prosecutors are people too, and he clearly managed to piss off the uh, assistant U.S. attorney prosecuting uh, that case. 
in, uh, in Washington uh, because they went so heavy handed with him and Republicans are complaining about how, you know, they, they mistreated Navarro. But, you know, when it suits them, they like to call upon the rule of law and law enforcement. When it doesn't suit them, it's always how governments, you know, overreaching and how Peter Navarro was treated poorly, even though uh, he, he effectively is now that, you know, is now being prosecuted for a contempt of Congress case. So I think it's it's when it suits them. They like to back the rule of law and when it doesn't suit them. They don't like to back it. One thing I will say, though, uh, about Republicans in Congress, someone close to Jim Jordan told me uh, a few weeks ago that the one thing that Jim Jordan doesn't want to do is to go to jail. So if the committee moves to enforce its subpoena against Jim Jordan, then he might cooperate because he doesn't want to get referred to DOJ and potentially go to jail. Listen, I've been there and I promise you nobody wants to go to jail. It's ugly, and I don't care if it's a satellite camp like I went to, you know, the you know alleged Camp Cupcake, and then when they brought us to the shit side over at EA Block um, on the main facility because of COVID, you know, we used to call Camp Dump Cake because the place is just a fucking shithole. Rest assured, Jim Jordan does not want to go there. Plus, all the allegations of him with the with the molestation of the boys. Chomos don't do very well in prison, and I think Jim Jordan would be considered a chomo, a child molester. Rest assured, he would not have an easy time there at all. So maybe before an indictment comes in, he may want to think about stopping the bullshit. And then you get Peter Navarro, just in, and you tweeted this out about three hours or so ago. Peter Navarro just pled not guilty to the two counts, right, of contempt of Congress uh, for refusing to comply with the January 6th committee subpoenas. The one thing about Navarro, though, he retained a lawyer. He retained a lawyer. Yeah, but I'm dumbfounded. He's pleading not guilty, but yet he refuses to appear. So it's sort of like, are you going to appear or are you not going to appear? If you're not, how do you plead not guilty? Uh, it's, it's merely a delay tactic, and it's not going to work out to his benefit. And I said that to everybody at my House Oversight Committee. I know what you're doing, and I know the game that you're playing. I know the playbook because I wrote it. Right. So don't try to run the playbook on me. And Peter Navarro, Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, all of these, you know, all of these fucking assholes. It's all the same thing. They're going after the Trump playbook and that playbook only benefits one person and it's not them. And that person's name is Donald J. Trump. I think that's exactly right. I think the fact that Navarro retained a lawyer was, again, very interesting to me because he was determined to represent himself pro se um, a little tidbit of information he didn't file when he originally filed that motion um trying to enjoin the uh u.s attorney for the district of columbia uh, in his lawsuit against the january 6th committee that he that motion he didn't write by himself he was consulting with a lawyer uh and then he told the fbi as we found out at his uh, arraignment um to reach out to his lawyer so he has all this bravado on, on the mm-hmm. public side saying i'm going to represent myself pro se and you know this is a witch hunt but secretly in the background he's been working with a lawyer the whole time. And then when it actually comes to him being uh, charged with two counts of contempt of Congress, he's now retained a lawyer and it was evident in the fighting last night. Yeah, well, he's smart to do so, but it lawyer can't help you when you're deep involved into the dumpster of Donald. So let me ask you this then, Hugo. 
How are McCarthy and all of the Trump toadies in Congress going to carry on as if nothing has happened or has changed? I mean, they can say the January 6th committee is illegitimate all that they like, but a whole bunch of their own people have testified. So it's going to be real hard for them to have it both ways. You agree with that? Right? Or are they just going to keep on denying reality, which is exactly what it seems like they're doing? Well, if, if the past is an indication of the future, I think it's probably going to be the latter and they're going to deny reality. Um, you know, I have to say a lot of the a lot of the arguments are completely shameless and it's very it's very hypocritical. I mean, one story that I that really sticks out to me every time I think about kind of McCarthy and Republican hypocrisy with this January 6th committee was when McCarthy said days after January 6th that Trump was responsible. It was fine because he said it. But when Cheney says it months later, suddenly that's not okay because it wasn't McCarthy saying it. And McCarthy by then had already made up with Trump. And Harry Dunn, the US Capitol Police officer who was trying to get McCarthy to get Republican support for the original 9 11 style commission that Congress was proposing, that House Speaker Pelosi was proposing, he put this to McCarthy and McCarthy had no response. And the reason he had no response was because, well, his hypocrisy was getting exposed. But the news cycle moves on. And I think so long as there's no legal accountability for these people who aided Trump's effort to overturn the election to commit these felonies, obstructing, like, and they're serious felonies, like obstructing an official proceeding, conspiring to defraud the United States, as long as there's no legal ramifications, these people will continue just the way they are because they will see that there is no uh, consequence for behaving in the way that they did. And I think that's really the takeaway here, right? Something needs to happen from an accountability perspective. Otherwise, nothing will change because that's the only language they understand. Right. I mean, it's it's sedition. And if they're not held accountable, you nailed it right on the head there, Hugo. If they're not, it's basically this was just a trial run for the next go around, for the Donald Trump 2.0 that will ultimately run, because I don't believe Donald will run. So it'll be for Donald Trump 2.0 to say, okay, this is what we did the first time, and it didn't exactly work out the way we want. What can we do to improve it, right? To make it better so that the next time we get exactly what we want which is an autocracy, which is to change the rules that it's not based upon, you know, the voters. It's based upon who's counting the votes. It's based upon who's the vice president of the United States, because according right, to the Republicans, the for, for sure, sake, right. because according to the Republicans, right, according to Donald, um, Mike Pence had the complete authority to do this. Right. You remember he stood up there? Mike Pence could do this. All right, Mike, you're my friend, but I'm not going to like you very much if you don't do this, if you don't change the electoral process. That's not the way the system works. And we really need to be careful because our democracy is in real peril and we are so close to losing it that I'm trying to use mea culpa. I'm trying to use my platform, not just to get out the truth in terms of what happened to me, my relationship with Donald Trump derangement, you know, syndrome, uh, you know, all of these, all of these other issues. I'm doing it really to create a movement because come the midterms and especially the general election, if this becomes a, a red sweep, I'm telling you, our country's in trouble. We will never be able to get democracy back the way we know it. And we're seeing this 
every single day. Look at what Trump did by stacking the Supreme Court. Now it's women's reproductive rights. What's next? You're going to have, obviously, they're attacking critical race theory, you know, white, white superiority, Southern white Christian coalition, you know, beliefs. This is not America. This is not the America that any of us were born into or want to see our children, you know, in or our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on. I mean, this is really dangerous stuff that Donald has put forth. And if we really don't get vigilant and start getting to the poll and getting rid of these these fucking lunatics we're not going to have the country that we had before so let me then let me move on and just ask you this then do you think that when all is said and done the january 6th hearings are over and the case is left for the doj to manage will anyone go to jail for the series of treasonous crimes or will it just be business as usual like what happened with the Mueller report right and further Do you think that Merrick Garland has the balls to hold Trump accountable? Because we all know, and we've seen now, these low-level oath keepers and proud boys and a bunch of other people who got, what, 45 days of imprisonment, right? Because, and you brought this up about Nixon. I mean, Nixon was just exiled and others went down for him. What do you predict will be Trump's fate? You know, Mar-a-Lago with an ankle bracelet, perhaps? I think that's a question that only Merrick Garland can answer because, you know, he's going to be the one calling the shots, right? Ultimately, I think, yeah, we can only, we can only hope that the DOJ looks at the evidence and thinks this is a prosecutable case and goes ahead with it. I mean, hope springs eternal in my book with DOJ. I think they are going about this in a, in a more, more aggressive strategy than they were previously. And they are looking at it in a very, they're looking at prosecuting people around Trump's inner circle now, which is a welcome development. I think the way they are trying to go about investigating from the bottom up is an interesting strategy that the select committee actually turned to towards the end of its investigation. Originally, it was trying to go from the top down. It was trying to start by looking around Trump, looking at Trump, seeing his contacts, his communications with people in in his inner circle and trying to connect the dots to see if there was some sort of conspiracy. Towards the end of the investigation, though, the select committee in recent weeks and recent months has started to also adopt a bottom-up approach, which is interesting, right? They're trying to look at the low-level guys that broke in. Now, who are their immediate um, handlers or, or, or minders? Who And who, who in turn managed them? And so if you look at the seditious conspiracy cases that are working its way through the courts now, you know someone like Enrique Tario, the national chairman of the Proud Boys, he has a history of flipping on people, and he, he has a history of cooperating uh, with prosecutors. So I do wonder if they are going to pursue this strategy of trying to get someone like Enrique to flip on someone else above him, and then trying to get that person above him to flip on someone else above him. Because once you start getting from the militia groups to stop the steal, now you're in kind of Roger Stone stratosphere, you know, people like Mike Flynn stratosphere, then it's a pretty short step to Trump, actually. And so there's only like a few hops you need to go from Enrique to Trump. And I wonder if that is kind of how they they are trying to structure this criminal investigation. And if they are, that would give me actually um, good reason to be optimistic. Okay, so look, uh, you know, when I first started my legal career, of course, before many years later, getting involved with Donald and biggest mistake of my life cost me my family's happiness, money beyond my law license, reputation, et cetera. All right. Um, 
I did litigation. And you don't need, right, 50 pieces of, you know, of um, information that all prove the same thing. All you need is one, especially in a case like this. They already have spoken to about, what, a thousand people? They have 100,000 plus documents. I mean, if you take the number of hours that they spent with all the witnesses, it's more than two years of 24-7 testimony, right? So they have a ton of information. How about just concentrate on one or two things? Let's just, let me, let's play, let's just play something out here. Take this guy, Barry Loudermilk, this asshole from Georgia, and he's walking around and you have the video of him walking with individuals and they're with their video cameras, taking photos and taking, you know, video of the Capitol and so on the day before. Now, there was no um, tours that were being given. And so, so the question is, we know these, you know, the point is we know that these people were there at the January 6th insurrection. We know that they had a map that they must have designed from their videos or, or whatever. So now we get this guy louder milk and you put his ass in the fire, right, right in the fire and say, you know, this is your chance to escape, you know, treason, which is life. All right. Um, tell us who told you to give these people the tour. Who did you report to? And rest assured, I know Donald better than anybody. I do. I know Donald better than anybody, which was why I was able to predict what he was going to do, along with about a dozen other things. Not because I'm Nostradamus, but because I know the animal that I lived with. All right. Everything comes back to Donald. All right. Now, it could be something like in the movie American Gangster, right, where Denzel Washington is playing, you know, Frank Lucas. And he goes, nobody talks to me. Everybody talks to Huey. You talk to Huey. Huey talks to me. It's just it's a matter of speaking to what? Three, four, five people. And they've already spoken to these people already. So just connect the dots and hold him for this. I mean, this this is it's just so apparent. And then. Put it to the video of Donald sitting out there telling everybody to go to the Capitol. I mean, I don't know why we're trying to reinvent the wheel when the wheel is already there. All you have to do is just pick it up and, you know, put it onto the frame and, you know, secure the lug nuts. It's just that simple. I think I think a lot of this is to do with kind of DOJ's mentality, right? Like the feds don't like to lose. And unless they have a 200 percent airtight case, they don't want to bring anything because that's just how the government is in, in these sorts of mitigation, right? I think it's a, that's just how, the peculiarity, not the peculiarity, but that's just the, the modus operandi of, of DOJ. So I think we always have to kind of think about that in the back of our mind. But then, you know, someone like Loudermilk, you could just sit him in a, in a room and, and, you know, try and get him to, to kind of confess, as it were, right? But Loudermilk, if he sticks to his guns, he can mount all sorts of, you know, defenses that try and try and obfuscate exactly what was going on. Um, you know, and I will share some of the reporting that we put in in, in the story when we did uh, when we covered the Loudermilk tour uh, a few days ago, which was one of the, the person who was taking photos of the staircases and the security checkpoints and the tunnels leading into the Capitol. Uh, we believe he left Georgia on January four, uh, took one of several convoy of coaches uh, up to DC. They stopped up in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, around midday on January 4, and they got into D.C. the late night January 4. Then they went and did the tour on January 5, around 1 p.m., because 
uh, we saw uh, he had posted a Facebook Live video. That had, all of this has been since been taken down, but he posted a Facebook Live video on his account. And then on the 6th was obviously at the base of Capitol Hill as uh, the mob stormed the Capitol. Um, but someone like Loudermilk, I think, could could mount a sort of defense that goes, well, you know, I didn't know why they were there. Like people take photos of stuff in the Capitol all the time that are weird. And that is true um, that people in the Capitol take photos of all sorts of weird things. And it's just because they're at the Capitol. Um, but when you play the fact that they were at the insurrection on January 6th, against the fact that they were taking photos of the security checkpoints in January 5, it does make you look at mm-hmm. that tour in a, in a different light. And I think it was smart in some ways for the committee to put that out there and show and, you know, put pressure and bring the kind of, um, and bring Loudermilk's feet to the fire there. Because once you look at those two things put together, it doesn't look very good. It, in fact, it looks pretty, pretty damning. Yeah, I would say so. So let me ask you this, because obviously we have two very, very conflicting uh, the, you know, thoughts of, you know, schools uh, of thoughts here. Um, one being, of course, Fox News, the other being, we'll call it MSNBC, CNN. And Fox News didn't want to run the hearings. I mean, are they completely devoid of reality? I mean, are they, are they you know, running or trying to run some sort of authoritarian agenda through the news, you know, that they present? I don't understand Fox News. I, I really don't. And their audience is clearly getting the message that it's us against them, all right? How can we as a society hold them responsible for calling the big lie truth and then basically brainwashing millions of people? Because, look, I know that you are very active on social media. You start seeing some of these clips and you would think that they're fake, that they're just, you know, um, to make you smile and laugh when you have reporters speaking to MAGA hat-wearing people who tell you that all of the ballots were shot up to Mars, right? And then from Mars, it shot back down to Earth, but it changes from a Trump vote to a Biden vote. I mean, that's not reality. That's First of all, these people are ignorant, yet that person holds the same power Right. Meaning to vote as you do. Right. One vote, one person. I think a lot of the Fox News coverage of this has been because, the, you know, it started it all started because the first hearing was in prime time. And at the first hearing, they were very, very worried that their texts, you know, to, to Donald, to Mark Meadows would be played by the set committee. And indeed they were. I mean, it just makes them it makes them. It exposes their hypocrisy, and it was clear that that was what they were afraid of. You know, Sean Hannity texting Meadows, clearly showing he knew January 6th was an insurrection, clearly knowing that it was all predicated on a lie. And when he, when those text messages are playing in front of you, there's no other conclusion you can draw other than the fact that these Fox News hosts in prime time are lying every night when they say it wasn't an insurrection, or as Trump is now calling it, you know, the rush on the Capitol, which, by the way, no one else is saying. Um, it's just that, you know, like like I was saying earlier, like you can't dispute the facts. And so that is where, as you know, this all comes from, right? This, you know, this is Fox News hosts realizing that they're going to be exposed as liars and hypocrites. And they, they don't want their audience to see that. But I think there is also the fact that the audience doesn't want to see this as well. Like the primetime people, uh, the, the, the people who watch Fox at, at primetime don't want their reality 
be presumably to be squashed and embossed by the pin that is the select committee and its findings. Um, so I, I don't know what game the, that Fox News thinks it's playing um, by insulating their audience from the truth. But that is effectively what's happening. Like, it's not even counter-programming at this point. It's just denial of reality and denial of truth. And I think that's a very sad place that we are uh, in American democracy. And, you know, we have moved on a little bit from this since the since the first hearing, because Fox is now playing the hearings in its, in its day-side slots, right? Like the 1 p.m. and the 10 a.m. ones they actually showed some of. Um, and I think that is partly because then there are good reporters at Fox that I know. Uh, and I think some of the good reporters at Fox have, have realized that this is too big a story uh, for them not to cover. And if they don't cover it, Liz Cheney's words will be true, as true for them as they are for Republicans, and that the shame will, can never be wiped off. Yeah, and I think that it's more for Hannity than just his text messages with Mark Meadows. Let's not forget, right after January 6th, the insurrection, uh, he was texting uh, Kaylee McEnany about some five-point plan with the first one, no more stolen election talk, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, her response was, uh, and then he continued on, right, with his second one, which was, yes, impeachment and the 25th Amendment are real, right? And many people will quit. Of course, then you got McEnany who responds, love that, thank you. That is the playbook. I will help to reinforce. Now, look, I know Donald, as I said, better than anybody. This to him had to be the kick to the balls with the steel tip boots that he never expected. Because when I was there, uh, Corey Lewandowski had told Trump that, you know, uh, Hannity was a backstabber and that he was doing things for Ted Cruz that weren't benefiting Trump. And then Trump cut him out. So he contacts me. Yeah. It's not true. Corey just doesn't like me because I won't put him on 24-7 or back up half the shit that he was making up. But now here's what you really find out, right? What, what Hannity's talking about. You're talking about the 25th Amendment here, right? And Kaylee McEnany, a basically untalented, you know, individual press secretary, ends up now, I think, at Fox or wherever the hell she's at, talking about going along with the playbook, and I will help to reinforce it. So what is it really showing you? All of the insiders now are turning against their master. And this is something that Donald Trump has a very hard time in dealing with, right? Hence the title of my book, Disloyal. Right? He expects every single person to be 100% loyal to him. And if not, that's when the knives come out, which of course is like what he was doing when he was talking about Mike Pence. But let me just move forward because I want to switch topics for a quick second. What do you think is going to come uh, of this bipartisan safe gun law that's working its way through Congress right now? I mean, was the effort sincere on the Republicans' part, or was it just a way to keep the public right from tar and feathering them? I mean, it clearly shows that there's an enormous amount of sway that the NRA uh, has over members of our Congress. What do we do here? That's a good question. I think the money in politics is, is a big factor in the way that these Republicans vote. But it's also beyond that, right? It's They have a genuine fear that if they move ahead with any sort of gun legislation, that they will lose uh, their voters. And it comes back to this idea and, and this, this truth that they want self-preservation over good governance. And 
I think until you are able to get around that, you know, you, Congress is going to have great difficulty in trying to pass meaningful gun reform. I mean, the House passed that bill about raising the the uh, the minimum age to 21, having more stringent checks, closing loopholes. I think the fact that the Senate did move on some of the negotiations for the gun bill was significant. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then McConnell came out and said, right, that you know he wasn't going to whip against it. And I think that was a major um, uh, a major development that shouldn't be overlooked. And I think it's because Republicans are starting to realize that the majority of the country agree with Democrats that there should be some sort of tightened gun regulations and that, you know, an 18 year old shouldn't just be able to go buy an AR-15 and shoot up a school. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, I mean, case in point, right? Like some of these some of these Capitol police officers that we see every day um, at the Capitol when we come into work. So, in fact, one of the officers, Harry Dunn, who's played such a big part in, in the January 6th story, he, for 20 years, was qualified um, with an M4 and an AR-15. He went. He goes to Quantico. Um, he has to go through multiple security checks. He has to go through uh, background checks. He has to get me- mental fitness tests. It is harder for him to get requalified twice a year to carry an AR-15 than it is for an 18-year-old in Texas to go buy an AR-15, which is just incredible. And like when you think about it in those stark terms and how easy it is for people to get guns, I think the public will start to understand how much of a problem it is. And the polling certainly reflects that. And what I was saying about self-preservation, because the polling reflects that, I think Republicans have started to come around to the idea that they need to support some sort of legislation. Otherwise, their self-preservation is in jeopardy. And I think that's where this is all coming from. You know, the Republicans showing that they have some good effort in, you know, or some kind of genuine effort in trying to in trying to tighten gun laws. So I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, Thune and, and McConnell will, will be able to push this through. You see, I'm not. Now, I'm going to tell you the reason why, because... You know, you have a whole slew of Republican candidates now, these far right QAnon fucking lunatics, all completely unqualified to hold any sort of office. I mean, you wouldn't hire them, right, you know, to, you know, to clean your office. That's just really the truth. I mean, you have Proud Boys in office now in Miami-Dade. I mean, these are violent individuals with violent beliefs, all right? Um, I mean, this is clearly... Who the, some of the, the Republicans want? I mean, otherwise, they w- they're certainly not running on the Democratic ticket. Let me put it to you that way. So I'm a little bit less, you know, there's a difference between hopeful and optimistic, right? Um, in this case, you know, let's just say I'm hopeful. And that's about, I think, the best that I can be because, like I said, you're not seeing these lunatics running on Democratic platforms. You, you're just not. But let me ask you this then, Hugo, because we've been talking a lot about the money trail and the Trump administration. And it looks like, you know, we're starting to ask, um, you know, a lot of questions about missing monies, including billions of dollars of missing PPE funds. You know, you can't speculate where some of that cash might have gone off to, right? Who's got it? I mean, you know, they say that there's a whole slew of folks that are involved, that were involved in it, you know, that they all, these bullshit excuses, you know, uh, they don't know who and they don't know how much. I mean, don't the American people deserve to know where their tax dollars have disappeared to? 
especially considering if you look at like the Forbes list, I think they said what? There was during the PPE times, there's a thousand new billionaires, some crazy number like that. So I'm not an expert on the on the COVID funding and then how all of that was 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 doled out. But I but one thing that I always thought was interesting was Jared was the one appropriating a lot of these funds. And you know the one thing we know with Jared is that a lot of the time there's some sort of self enrichment going on. It's not always the case, but invariably there seems to be some connection to Jared and you know his friends and his associates. So you go not you go not to you go not to interrupt you, but I'm going to. Name one scenario that Jared was involved in that did not permit him to benefit from it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I can't. Right. <laughs> which, is, which is emblematic. Apo- which is emblematic. So right. apologies. Please right. continue. No, no, but I, look. And, and so the fact that Jared was handling this and Jared was the point, point guy on, on the COVID funding makes me think that, or, you know, makes me suspect that some of the money was misappropriated. If not, maybe a large portion of the money was misappropriated. Like, you know, there needs to be an independent investigation into that. Just as much as, just as much as the, there was a lot of money that seemed to go missing around the inaugural, right? I mean, when when Tom Barrett was involved, and, and you know, there was a lot of obfuscating between the different creation of different small shell companies, you know, like Tiny Horse, and yeah, as, as you know, there was a lot of a lot of uh, what appears to be malfeasance around the inaugural. That appears to be lot of malfeasance around uh, the COVID funding. Whenever the Trump family gets involved, for some reason, money seems to go missing. And so um, that is, that's probably as much as I could pro- probably speculate on where the money ended up. But uh, I agree with you that it's, a, it's an element of concern and there should be some accounting of where the money has gone, given it is taxpayer money. Yeah, 100%. And how many times have I said this on television or to Congress and so on? He's the grifter in chief. This is all, and it has always been about money. This was never about the presidency. This was always about the brand. It was supposed to be the greatest infomercial. His political campaign was supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics. It was all to grow the brand and to enrich himself, which they did, starting with, you know, um, the hotel in Washington, all the way to PPE money. And I was, I read somewhere, I believe, that Jared received PPE money too. I mean, you know, or members of his family and friends and, you know, big donors. I mean, this is, it's just it's the giant grift i mean that's really what it is but you know you go as we wind down the hour i have one last question for you so democrats seem like they're just putting out fires that the republicans start and then they have nothing to run on there's no clear messaging what would you suggest democrats do to get elected in november i mean safe gun laws reproductive rights save the democracy are these ideas too complicated to be conveyed clearly to the, you know, to the general public? And then what happens if we don't win in November and in the, and in the general election? What happens? I don't know what I would recommend Democrats to do for the midterms. I mean, that's not my area of speciality, but I will say this. I think a lot of what has happened in the last two years, especially with things like gas prices, like things that, like abortion rights, I think Democrats have to focus on how much it's been Trump-connected Republicans that have effectively turned the country in the direction that we are going. And the emphasis on Trump, because nothing gets Democratic voters out like Trump. Nothing gets independent voters out like Trump. This has to be another referendum on Trump because Trumpism hasn't gone away. He might not be president, but the, the links are clear. And I don't think Democrats ever explain this about how everything 
that is happening now goes back to how these Republicans are are still loyal to Trump and they act in the way that they think Trump uh, would want them to act. Uh, you know, it's, and then there's some wider things about like abortion, you know, these really deep conservative issues. I think they need to capitalize on the fact that most of the country don't want to see abortion rights, you know, destroyed. I think these are very popular uh, measures and, you know, well, well, popular rights, I should say. Um, and that has to be conveyed in a way that people can understand that Democrats are trying to save them and Republicans are trying to gut them. Um, I don't think we're, Democrats do a very good job of explaining this. I, one thing I don't think it sh- uh, should be a focus on is January 6th. And I think Democrats are not going down that route because I think a lot of the country is very exhausted by January 6th. We've had kind of nonstop in your face coverage of it. I mean, it's exhausting for me and I cover it, right? Uh, so I can't, even, I think there is an element of January 6th fatigue. But rather than reacting to Republicans all the time, as you say, I think. Democrats really need to be more proactive and do the kind of dirty politics that Republicans are very good at. Like Republicans are very good at blaming everything on Democrats, even when it's clear that it's not Democrats' fault. So I think Democrats have to turn the other cheek and start blaming Republicans um, in the same way that Republicans blame Democrats. Yeah. You know, and look, uh, you're part of that Gen Z. You're you're a young man uh, involved with The Guardian as a a journalist. Um, What's the message that the DNC, that the you know, that Democrats have to get out to the Gen Z voter because your you know your voting block is enormous, and I just don't see any tailored um, messaging for Gen Z. What would you What would you recommend to them? Hmm. A good, again, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's it's really difficult. I think. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to stick to what I've been saying, which is that the Democrats have to show and, and just, just say enough times that Republican policies are hurting the country and that Republicans are directly hurting the country, because that's what Republicans are doing. And it, you know, cuts through to their base, right? You know, if you think about the, the, the 24 to 54 demographic, the, the, the most um, active demographic that watch Fox News prime time, and that advertisers care most about, that's a pretty good indication of the demographic you need to speak to. Democrats don't do the same thing. And I think that's really problematic. I don't see anything on social media or wherever that makes that case about how Democrats are, you know, how Republicans are destroying the country. But you do see a lot of stuff about how Democrats are destroying the country, you know, false as it is. And it's in my timeline. Well, and, let, well let me tell you what I would, my recommendation. And then, like I said, you know, the hour goes by real quickly on mea culpa. I would put people like you, people like David Hogg. I'd put you front and center and have you start putting out the message so that those that look like you, right, your age group can understand and appreciate. Because when you start having a bunch of white, male octogenarians, right, and on both sides coming out there, it's very hard for them to relate and to, you know, say, yeah, I understand what he's saying. It's three generations of differences. It's, it's just, you don't get it. They don't get you. You don't get them. We need to start getting more folks like yourself that have clear messaging, that have the ability to articulate the problems that this country right now is suffering and get you guys front and center out there, um, you know, so that you could explain to your group, 
right, exactly what's going on and the reasons that their vote is so, so, so important coming up both the midterms and the general. So, Hugo, let me thank you for your time. Let me thank you for your great reporting. Um, Stay in touch. I definitely need you to come back on as more of this crap, you know, unravels. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think, you know, your your suggestion is is right on the money. I don't know if I would be the best person necessarily to be be talking about this, but it's true that I think it is very difficult. And, you know, speaking from personal experience as an above average consumer of news, that it is very difficult to relate to anything, you know, on cable where you see these, you know, middle-aged or kind of older demographic people opining generally about what young people should be doing or what the country should be doing mm-hmm. yeah and you know this is the thing like and most people don't con- most people the most gen z's most millennials don't consume news that way anymore like you know people do stream people do flip through you know one minute clips on instagram and on tiktok like that's where the messaging has to be there's no point having dnc people talk on msnbc in the 4 p.m hour agree because i can i can guarantee no one of my generation is watching cable news at 4 p.m on a weekday afternoon they are scrolling through Instagram. Right, or if they're at the bar. So, Hugo, let me thank you. Um, I will speak to you very, very soon. Stay in touch because I need your voice. Thanks for having me. Be well, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. Just for the hell of it, after a day of intense revelations made by the January 6th committee, I decided to jump over to Fox and see what they had to say. I didn't expect much. After all, they're still pushing the big lie and mentioning it opens up a can of worms. But Tucker Carlson opened his show Thursday with some bullshit about Dr. Fauci and dead cows in Kentucky, about gas prices, and went on to blame absolutely fucking everything that's gone wrong in the world on President Biden. Same with Hannity. Nothing about the hearings, just wall-to-wall Biden bashing. Now, I understand they're mad. We always knew that Trump was a crook who had no business ever being president of anything. So hating on Biden is just payback. But Fox isn't alone. Just about everywhere you turn, people have something bad to say about the president. A man that, from what I can see, is trying to hold the world together. If it hadn't been for Biden, NATO would have fallen apart and Ukraine would have already been beaten by Putin. Biden pushed to get money to families and businesses that needed it during the pandemic. He got vaccines into arms and prayed for the dead and their loved ones on national television. After decades, he got an infrastructure deal passed. He got us out of Afghanistan and lowered the unemployment rate to 3.6%. When the president first took office, 20 million people were on unemployment. Now it's just under a million. Base salary rates have been raised and the unions are coming back. This is good news for workers. The deficit, that thing that Republicans love to blame on Democrats and social spending, will be reduced by a billion dollars before the end of summer. Okay, yeah, Biden talks out of his ass sometimes too because he wants things to change for the better now. He's old, he's impatient, but look at Biden's cabinet. It's the most diverse cabinet in American history. He made good on his promise to seat a black woman on the Supreme Court, and she's also by far the most qualified person for the job. The man loves his wife, and like pretty much every family in America, he's got one kid that's, well, let's just say a black sheep. But do you doubt for a minute that he loves this country and the people in it? 
Even the people who come for him daily, he's still working for them, still fighting for them. So, like the guy or not, he's not a thief or a member of some elite class. He's just a guy from Scranton who overcame poverty and a speech impediment. He failed to become president three times, but he showed up when we needed him. And yeah, gas prices are high. There's inflation and whatever. I believe that Biden is doing his best and he deserves our support. And more importantly, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. (laughs) 